You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 87. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. You have reached another Local Maximum. Welcome, everyone. So, all you software engineers, particularly you machine learning engineers and data scientists out in the audience today, this episode is really for you. Deep learning is on the cutting edge of AI, and as we'll see, it is becoming more and more practical for companies to use in building out their products and analysis. Now, for the rest of you, yes, we talk a little bit, a little inside baseball here today when it comes to machine learning, but you're going to hear a lot about this topic. You're going to hear a lot about deep learning and advanced AI in the coming years, if you haven't already, and I want you to be prepared to understand what's going on. So, for example, in episode 56... We talked about uh, how good machines have become at coming up with fake images and fake news and fake audio, and that's already a real you know, headline grabber. And you might have heard about advances in machine translation and image recognition and online advertising, but today you're going to get a taste of how engineers are practically making all of this happen on a large scale. The book from today's guest is called Deep Learning with Structured Data. If you are a machine learning engineer or data scientist at your company, you should really check it out because we have a discount code on the Manning Publishing site, podlocalmax19. You can also, you can get all that at our show notes page, localmaxradio.com slash 87. And if you're interested in uh, the free ebook version on the subject, the first five people who email me about it at localmaxradio at gmail.com will get a code to unlock that as well. So with that, Today's guest has over 20 years of experience leading teams delivering IBM's premier relational database product, and most recently, he is the author of Machine Learning with Structured Data. Mark Ryan, welcome to the show. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Max, thanks so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, I, I'm excited to have you on. I haven't, you know, it's. I looked at like when the last time I actually did a show about machine learning, an episode. And it's really been a few weeks. Uh, I usually do them a lot more frequently. So it's good to stop in today and um, find out you know, what you know and what you learned. So I, I want to get this story from you because you decided to start learning about machine learning, learning about machine learning uh, in 2017. And now it's 2019 and you already have a book out on deep learning, which is like, that's a pretty fast turnaround time for me. So why did you pick up on the subject of machine learning to begin with? Okay, well, that's, uh, there's a bit of history there. I, uh, my academic background is in artificial intelligence, but that's a few uh, AI winters ago. So uh, back when I did my master's in computer science at the University of Toronto under Graham Hurst, um, it, and that was in computational linguistics particularly, it was all symbolic AI. So basically trying to recreate some aspect of the real world using Lisp or Prolog and see if that'll work. So these are, these are old languages they're, for they're, people who don't know. Yes, they're old. Uh, uh, they, were, they were pretty standard for the AI world back in those days in the late 80s and early 90s. Right. And so machine learning wasn't uh, really on the radar then or, or was it like considered a small part of AI or because uh, now it's like there's AI and... Machine learning isn't the only part of AI, but it's usually what people think. It's of. predominant. Yeah, the statistic, the statistical-based approaches now really are are predominant. 
And I can remember back when I was doing my master's, there was a little section on neural networks, just as there's this interesting idea. And I think it was brought up there more in the in the sense of, well, maybe this has some relationship to the way that human beings biologically have consciousness, as opposed to being practical at the time. But uh, and, and what was sort of the time that was there was a lot of interest in it and people were excited about it, but the practical applications were pretty limited. So uh, I was very interested in uh, computational linguistics, uh, machine translation, and the at that time the you know, the, the kinds of practical applications, weather uh, forecasts, so one-line weather forecasts, it's going to rain tomorrow, in Canada were translated from English to French by a primitive machine learning system. So that was really okay. kind of the scope. And the symbolic approach at that time, basically would work with toy examples, but when you tried to go larger, there would be a there would be a problem. And and by the time I... So can you explain a little bit about like what is the symbolic approach, just the kind of... What's the like essence of the symbolic sure. approach? So it's, it's essentially you're writing code. So you're not... Uh, compared to modern machine learning where the, the smarts are defined by the data, essentially. You have an algorithm that, that uses the data to uh, code right. itself in some, in some perspective. In those days, it was all hand coding. So for example, if you wanted to create an expert system, which we call it at the time, to help diagnose uh, cancer patient issues, you would have to write, you have to sit down with a, a bunch of oncologists, extract the knowledge from them manually, and then write code that would ask the right questions and make the right kinds of inferences. So it was, uh, it, it was extremely manual in that sense. And there were, there were some insights and some things that could be reused, but essentially everything that it did was through standard kind of code, you know, uh, if statements, for loops, sequential code. Yes. So so I can imagine like with the translation, it would be like, okay, I have all these words. I'll look them up in the English to French dictionary in my, uh, in memory or, or whatever. And then I know some French grammar rules. I need to like change these words around a little bit. And then you know, voila, here's the answer. It will look a little silly sometimes, but you can kind of get the gist of it maybe. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's essentially, essentially what it was. And for, for uh, natural languages, there was a fair bit of work at that time, even at that time done on creating grammars. So there was a, a good basis to, to start with. And certainly syntax, there was, there were decent code libraries to use, but, uh, yeah, it was it, it had its it had its limitations. And I think even when I was there in the late 80s, there was a sense of, you know, impending disappointment or maybe this wasn't this wasn't going to be a way that was going to uh, turn into something exciting. And then for me in my journey, so I went and worked for worked for IBM, uh, ended up working in the on the DB2 relational database product for a long time and then started to see things happening that we said, well, maybe this something's happened here. This stuff is actually working. So uh, the the Jeopardy thing in 2011 was a significant accomplishment. I know there was a lot of brute force behind that. You go behind the curtains. It was it was just a lot of just plowing as much hardware as possible. But nevertheless, a pretty impressive result. And then yeah. uh, you know Google deciding to replace its machine learning approach, which was essentially symbolic beforehand with with deep learning. I thought, wow, this is this is really working. There's something here that's really working. So uh, I was very excited and I did everything I could to get up to speed and find out what's the secret sauce. Why is this, why is this stuff working now when the approach before looked like it was, 
uh, you know, it was, it, unless we have infinite, infinite uh, developer time, just wasn't going to produce useful results. That's an interesting question. So why, before people were taking similar approaches, it wasn't working. Now it seems to be working. Uh, what do you think the difference is? Is it amount of data, computational power, something else? A number of things have happened. So uh, the cost of computation has become, become a lot cheaper. So neural networks, deep learning is actually practical. And what's happened in the last maybe four or five years is there are cloud platforms where you can get, you know, for the co- price of a, a cup of coffee an hour, you can get massive power to do uh, and to, to train models. So you don't need to be working for one of the top 10 organizations in the world to have dedicated on, on-prem hardware. You can, you can rent it on the cloud. So that's made a difference. Um, but there are two other things. One is that the frameworks have matured. TensorFlow, PyTorch, Keras as a, as a front end for TensorFlow have become much easier to use. So the, the accessibility, you don't, don't have to have the PhD in artificial intelligence to get to the point where you do a, get sort of a hello world style uh, application of deep learning. And that's made a huge difference. Right. And uh, there's also training that's aimed at non-specialists. So the, the Andrew Eng's uh, introductory machine learning course is just fantastic. And it doesn't really assume a whole yeah. lot of background. The fast AI deep learning That's course is just, it's fantastic. And again, it's, you know, there, there's some prerequisites, but a non-specialist can really start to do things with deep learning from what they get out of that course. And that, so getting the data, uh, cloud environments that are available, the frameworks becoming mature and uh, accessible ways to learn about it. These things have all come together, I think, to make it something that has a, a broader ap- applicability outside of, you know, Facebook and uh, and Google. So what was the hardest thing that you found when you were diving into machine learning a couple of years ago? That's a great question. That's a great question. I think for me, the hardest thing was that was knowing what to learn next. So from a standing start, there was a lot to catch up on. So Python, the choice between R and Python, Python seemed to be a good bet. It's easy, easy to get started with, harder to be efficient with. And there's just so much there. Uh, getting through the basic math. I mean, that just took some time to sort of understand, get some sense of that uh, on the. Yeah. I, I found that the math, like, so I, I learned some of this stuff in, in grad school mm-hmm. in, in 2010, 2011. And I found that, no, I really had to lock myself in a room with a couple other people and be like, let's figure out what all these equations say. And I think a lot of people that didn't do that, didn't get the the right intuition for what was going on. So that's interesting is you've had that experience of, of uh, from an academic, a graduate academic perspective of going through this. Yeah. So what were you, how, why were you, how were you uh, exercised on that? Did you have to like reproduce the, uh, the proofs or sort of a standard kind of math way or how, um, how were you tested on it? That's a good question. I don't, I, I think that I just, I don't think that we were tested on it that carefully. Well, so first of all, I should say that this is, you probably know the professor of the class. This was Jan LeCun's class okay. uh, at NYU. Uh, Star and, power. Uh, this, yeah. Um, and I didn't know who he was uh, when I enrolled in the class, uh, which is kind of funny. Um, so I, I think it was just, hey, I wanted to know like why these equations worked and I don't remember how we were tested. I mean, we had to implement them in code, sure. But 
if I was going to do something custom, then I was like, I better understand how this kind of works. Um, I don't remember why, like what, if there was something specific in the course that made it so you have to kind of lock yourself in a room and do it. Maybe not. Maybe people got by without it, but it was a very useful thing to actually learn. And, and have you found that useful in your professional life? I know working, you've, you've, you've worked for a uh, time at Foursquare and then back again now. Yes. Is, is that something you're, is, are you digging into that math on a day-to-day basis or is it more? Uh... I do. Uh, I mean, partially it's because I like doing it. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's not just the, you know, it's not just the, uh, you know, the actual benefits I get at work, but I have gotten benefits, uh, particularly when the machine learning algorithms don't work out of the box and we have to do something custom. Uh, if they work out of the box, it's great. You just have to know what button to push and then it works. But if, if it doesn't, then you really have to dig in and see, okay, why is this failing? And then in that case, it really helps to know the math. Well, that's interesting. The one thing I found really satisfying and surprising is I was I was curious about well, why does this work, and then seeing it sort of a, there's a bit of a confluence math perspective at a very high level, a confluence of a bit of calculus and some linear algebra, and that those coming together, given you know, the background that I had, they they were quite separate worlds, and they were the academic yeah. and they really kept really separate. And the idea that there's this uh, application that's so useful. And so powerful, and it's those two coming together. It's it's really interesting. It's a. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, somebody would have expected that to to happen. Yeah, it's like you remember the you know in, in math class in high school, people asking like, why why is this ever going to be used? And it's like, well, uh, <laughs> actually, quite a bit. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, I found that hard but very rewarding. And you know, nowadays, yeah, there's so much, there's so much out there, so much to learn, and that's really hard to get through. Which is why it's helpful to to have a book on it. Okay, so let's let's kind of distinguish machine learning from deep learning a little bit. I think they both get overhyped sometimes. Sometimes people confuse one for the other. Um, we kind of make a joke sometimes, like, oh, you know, I'll add. Uh, an extra layer to one variable, and now we could tell we could market this as deep learning. You know, uh, so what would you say is a good definition of deep learning, and uh, maybe give some examples? That's a that's a really it's a really good question because I think that line does get blurred, and people will talk about machine learning when they when they mean deep learning or vice versa. Before I dig into it, one thing I, I think it's evident that, uh, or maybe it's not that evident, but I I, I think that had the deep learning impact, like the uh, ImageNet result back in 2012, had that not happened, then machine learning would have been important. It would have, it would have been something that was that was playing a, a, a bigger role, but it wouldn't have the prominence that it has now. So yeah. it really is, I think deep learning is the thing, because of the results that it's produced, is the thing that's put rocket boosters on machine learning overall. And the, the, the terminology is unfortunate, and that's a pretty common thing in the whole area where you think, why did, I guess, people come up with terms as they're going along? They're not thinking this is going to be something for, you know, for the ages. But it really is unfortunate we have machine learning as the general area and deep learning as the, the as a subset because it's, that's just yeah. confusing by itself. And deep work. And then there's AI. And then AI, exactly. We've, we've <laughs> seen that picture you know, dozens of times with the AI circle and the machine learning circle inside that, deep learning circle inside that. And then the phrase deep learning is, it's a great marketing term, but it, it's, uh, 
it, it, it's probably we better had a more sober term been used. Anyway, uh, so getting getting back to your, your question about distinguish between the two, uh, you raise a good point because you could there's a sort of over overlap there. So you have a logistic regression, a classical machine learning approach. And if you add, add, you know, one hidden layer there, is that is that deep learning? Well, from a, a right. th- from a formal definition point of view, yes, it is. But is it from a, what people really mean? I don't think it is. So I think it's maybe a bit of a cop out, but I'd say one way to look at it is what framework you're using. If you're using scikit-learn, it isn't deep learning. And if you're using TensorFlow, Keras or PyTorch, it is. And then in terms of where it's working or, or not working, the examples of deep learning making a difference. So obviously in image processing, face recognition, audio processing, uh, natural language processing, right. machine, machine Those translation. Those are almost you know, what a lot of people call the like, quote, hard problems where it's not very clear how to go from a list of numbers to the value that you want. Like, um, you know, because you know, images, they get so abstract uh, or you need so many layers of abstraction to actually understand what an image is. It succeeded there in part because the payback has made up for the difficulties of deep learning. So the additional resource requirements, requirements for lots of data, uh, going back a few years, having to deal with some pretty brutal frameworks. Like Tensor, I, I didn't do a whole lot of work with TensorFlow 1.0, but my gosh, that whole idea of saying, well, first you say what you want to do, right? You know, have it all coded and then you execute what you want to do. It just goes against the way that most human beings think. And it uh, reminded me of um, yeah. uh, Hewlett Packard, the reverse, reverse Polish notation uh, calculators. People say, well, it's better. It's better. This is, this is, this is a much purer way of doing it. I think, yeah, but people don't think that way, whether, whether it's you know, good or not, it makes things more difficult. So, no one's going to say one one plus. No, no, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, and I think the the TensorFlow up until two came out had that difficulty working with it. So, given the difficulty of using the frameworks, the need for lots of data, uh, and the computational requirements, you'd want to see some pretty spectacular results before you'd make the investment or say, "Well, deep learning may be the way to go." Uh, and I think what's happened over the last five or six years, getting the adequate uh, machine resources is a lot easier. The frameworks have become a ton better. And you know, that's kind of the argument that I make in the book is that now maybe consider not to say that uh, every problem that's been dealt with with the classic machine learning is, is worth trying with deep learning, but we should open the aperture a little bit. Consider looking at deep learning as an, as an alternative because some of the reasons for not doing in the past have kind of gone away. And I would argue that right now, because of all of the effort that's been put into making the deep learning frameworks better and better and better, you know, they've been, they've been kept pretty sharp. Whereas the, the classical machine learning frameworks, not as much effort has gone into improving them. So even looking at the APIs, the, uh, the APIs in scikit-learn, a little, a little bit musty, you know, they're understandable, but you think, yeah, this is, Sure. You know what? It's, it's interesting because there was so much effort to put into uh, making deep learning easier. Now the situation where the APIs for deep learning are actually a little bit more natural to deal with than the quote unquote simpler APIs for classic machine learning. Right. So, so uh, 
Your book is Deep Learning for Structured Data. And so in your book, you're actually talking about more traditional data sets, um, not images or audio or anything like that, but more you know, tabular data sets or, or marketing data like we have here at Foursquare. Um, and so you're saying that deep learning can be used for that as well. Exactly. That, to have an open mind about it. And the reason, it really, reason, okay. the reason that I had interest in this is, is very selfish. As I was learning deep learning, I thought, you know what? I, in my job... I'm not dealing with audio. I'm not dealing with video. I'm not dealing with uh, uh, unstructured text. I'm dealing with relational data. I'm dealing with tabular, structured tabular data. And I would really like to be able to apply what I'm learning to solve some problems in my job. And it would help me to learn, motivate yeah. me to actually learn about deep learning if I were solving rather than some toy problem or somebody else's problem. I, were try- I was trying to solve a problem in my own job. So... Uh, that's really what led me to to try this. And, and the fast AI course had a little, just a little teaser on this subject. Uh, and that, that was tantalizing, but it was hard to sort of find uh, examples of this because when I asked some people I really respected, people who were kind of uh, leading lights that I had access to, they said, oh, don't, don't, don't use deep learning with structured data. I said, why? Uh, well, um, you know, they came up the, uh, they said, well, it's, it'd be simpler if you just use uh, classic machine learning algorithms, which is a reasonable, yeah, well, a reasonable argument. And I wouldn't. I think, yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. I may have said the same thing. Yeah. And that's a reasonable argument. And I think, the, the, again, I'm not, I'm not making an argument that, that deep learning should be applied to everything, but it just didn't satisfy me very much. Like, well, really? You know, that's that's the reason you're saying it's going to be so much harder and so much more complicated. Well, I've you know, done a few implementations with XGBoost and I found it a some, in some cases, it'd be a bit of a bear. So maybe, you know, if I try deep learning and I get some okay results, why not try it? And uh, it yeah, was really so- just, you know, selfishly, I wanted to be able to apply, learn faster and apply what I've learned in my job. And I'm dealing with structured tabular data. So that's what I, that's the approach I took. And I also, I guess I felt a little bit unsatisfied with, the answers I was getting for why it wasn't being done, I didn't think that they were, they were really convincing. I, I mean, it could be like, hey, it's it was hard for me to do it a few years ago, and so I just did it the simpler way. And now, if the deep learning tools are a lot easier, then maybe it makes sense to go for yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And people have argued, you know, they've, people have done side by side taste tests and said, well, I got sort of equivalent performance. Deep learning and XGBoost, for example. So why would I use why would I use deep learning? And that's that's uh, fair. But I think you know having a, a more open mind about it is is interesting. And I and I, I guess you know my my interest is is application. But I'd like to see maybe some a bit of research. Somebody t- taking a look at this, saying, well, is there something? And, and I've I've seen a little bit about well the the kind of signal that you can find in unstructured data lends itself to deep learning, whereas the signal for, for structured data doesn't. And, uh, you know, that may be an interesting research topic for somebody to look at and say, well, you know, is, is that actually the case rather than a hunch? Is that something that can be uh, proven? Right. Okay, good. So let me give an example from, from my work, because I've mentioned this on the show before, uh, is, you know, Foursquare, we're a company that knows where people go. And so, one thing that I built, um, maybe it was, it was three years ago. So 
Uh, I didn't use deep learning. I used, uh, we ended up with XGBoost as also testing a okay. logistic regression. But that was to predict people's age and gender based on the list of places that they visited in the past. And, you know, people might say, oh, my God, it's so scary. You're going to know all this stuff about me based on where I go. It's like, well, it's not that accurate. Uh, <laughs> but it's better, like gender prediction, it's better than 50-50 if we know that you went to certain places, uh, certainly. You know, um, I, I don't think that's a surprise that any statistical model can actually pick up a signal there. Um, so... We used, I, you know, I started with a baseline model, moved to logistic regression, moved to XGBoost, which worked a lot better. Um, so uh, where, where would you begin to kind of decide, to kind of ask the question, okay, is this something where we can use deep learning if we wanted to refresh this in the future? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. So I'd say, I guess data is still... One of the things that hasn't changed is that the success with deep learning does require a certain volume of data. And I'd say you need at least in the tens of thousands of uh, data points to work with. Um, right. I would also say, and this is something that I'd be honest with you, it's more of a hunch than something that I've, you know, I haven't proved it. But what I've seen in the, the work I've done is having a, a heterogeneous kind of data structure. So you have a table and you have some of the columns that are the that are legitimate features are continuous, and some of them are categorical, and some are text. That that combination is something that lends yeah. itself to deep learning. Whereas if you have a and that happens all the time, and none of the models that you learn in school are based around that. About that combination of different kinds of different different. Yeah, streams. I mean a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Like we get, oh, okay, you could just turn them all into real numbers, whatever. But like. In terms of getting like real experience on that, like that that is that's more of a real world problem. Yeah, yeah, and there there are lots of things. For example, one of the uh, prototypes that I did when I was in the DB two area was uh, doing analysis of DB two customer tickets to say, can we predict how long it's going to take for this ticket to get the resolution? And the tickets, the metadata, of the tickets included the description of the problem that the customer entered as they as they opened up the ticket. And that kind of analysis, you can actually do really cheap, fairly cheaply do simple uh, NLP on that text as part of a deep learning model. And it's not that ex it's not that expensive, yeah. relatively easy to do. And I found from my experiments I did, it actually made a difference. It wasn't it wasn't groundbreaking, but including that uh, uh, description of the problem with a large enough data set, there are about a million records in the data set I was working with. It improved the uh, the uh, performance of the model by a non-trivial amount. So I thought oh, that's that's pretty interesting. And yeah. It's not like it was very sophisticated. It was a, you know, just a simple RNN as part of the model. It was very bog standard, and it it made a difference. I think doing that in a uh, non-deep learning context would be would be difficult. Or combining combining, let's say, the deep learning for just for that column, and then using um, Classical machine learning for the others would would make it a lot more complicated. So, where would you take the opposite approach and say, no, this data set, this is um, better for more traditional or simpler models? So, yeah, so, uh, so smaller data sets, less than I don't know, maybe twenty thousand records. That's probably not going to have a lot of success with deep learning. If you had a data set that was basically uh, pretty very simply, just a couple of columns. And one was categorical and one was continuous. 
I don't think that would have that would have potential to be all that that's useful. Again, that's my a small number, of a small features. number of features exactly, and features that are, yeah. that don't span that range of continuous features. So you know, temperature, time, uh, uh, things, distances, categorical, uh, states of the U.S., days of the week, um, months of the year, that kind of thing, and then text features, just sort of unstructured text. I think having a data set that you're working with where all three of those are spanned is the, is the kind of thing that's going to uh, provide more return on investment with deep learning. If they don't have that, it's a simpler data set, then I would, I would tend towards uh, classical machine learning. So with the rise of uh, deep learning specifically and machine learning in general in the last few years, what do you think the effect has been on you know, the, the, the tech industry and also on just, you know, I want to say the economy or the, the society in general, like what do you think that there have been, have you seen like really interesting products and, and applications come out that affect people? Oh yeah. Yeah. There, there are all, all sorts of things that have had a, had a pretty big impact. The, uh, uh, assistants like, uh, Siri or Alexa, and that all the the, the uh, interpretation of the, the going from audio to text is using using deep learning, and then the natural language processing using deep learning. And these are things we take for granted now, but they're pretty astonishing. They're pretty. It's pretty amazing yeah. the fidelity of the performance and how useful and how much they become part of our lives. So those are that's a an application that I think because it's it's used so broadly and taken so much for granted is something that's pretty astonishing. Um, machine translations become a lot better. It's a tough problem to solve, but it really has become a lot better and it's, it's continuing to improve. So that's something I think has real potential to be revolutionary, particularly if you, if somebody who can really crack the code and get something you can take with you when you're traveling and has good fidelity and is just a really smoothly designed thing, whether it's a, uh, a smartphone app or a dedicated device, I think that would be a, a, a huge, a huge game changer. And that's probably not too far away. Self-driving cars. I'm a, I'm a believer. I think that that's coming. I know there are people who say that that's, uh, there, there are too many problems to deal with, but I think, I think it's coming. I, I think it is. It doesn't help that the companies keep saying, you know, Oh, one to two years out, which is a little too, <laughs> You know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. With you. So I think those are those are three areas that where there, you know, I, either there's already been a big impact or it's 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 coming. And in terms of the impact on the industry, like right now, what I can see is there's still, while the frameworks have gotten better and the actual manual work required to get results isn't is starting to come down. There's, and I'm sure you see this in your work. There's a there's a huge gap in skills. Hiring people with the right skills to actually be able to do something practical, to be able to jump in and solve a problem, because it requires so many different kinds of skills and technical skills and soft skills. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. So what do you think is the biggest misconception about deep learning uh, when it comes to the general public? I'm not sure if this is a misconception. I, I think people over overplay it a little bit is the mysteriousness of it. And, I, and that unfortunate naming mm. of deep learning makes it sound, well, yeah, it's just something. And then there are quotes of people who say, and they're honestly saying, well, I'm not sure what's happening. I'm not sure. I don't know why the algorithm is doing what it's doing. And that's literally true. 
but uh, a non-specialist layperson can hear that and think, oh, this is Hal, or this is there's there's something really spooky happening here, as opposed to there's there's some yeah there's like some creature in there exactly. So I think that and that maybe that's it. That idea that the because I don't think that deep learning, if if uh, the uh, what's the 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 phrase starts with an S for. Um, uh, super, super intelligence. intelligence. Yeah, <laughs> you know what you know what I mean. The, the um, uh, I think that the if if that is possible, if human beings are possible at doing that, I don't think deep learning will be the path to that. So I think people's concern mm-hmm. about deep learning and the the things because they see the impact that it's having, and then extrapolating to that to say there's going to be some sort of uh, artificial general intelligence that will has potential to um, outstrip human intelligence. I, I I think that's a that's a fairly common misconception, and it does. I think somebody like Elon Musk, with his reputation, saying that he's concerned about it, I don't think helps either because people say, "Oh, well, this guy's a this guy's really smart, and he's concerned about it, so I shouldn't yeah. worry about it." Yeah, it's interesting. I listen, and it's um, it's. I don't know if he's thinking many years ahead or if he's just repeating stuff that he's been told, but I um, I have trouble making sense of what he's saying. What do you think? That's an interesting. What's what's your opinion on that? Because obviously uh, Tesla is very interested in the self-driving car part of it. So he has people in his organization who are deep into making this this stuff work, and yet he, as a leader, sees a, a threat that doesn't seem to really jive with what the reality is. Well, what do you think is happening there? I I think that Elon Musk is the type of person who will try to project stuff many years into the future and sort of anytime someone comes out with something that looks pretty cool, he'll be like, okay, what, and I kind of understand this personality type. He's like, okay, what does it look like if that's a thousand times better? Or if that's, you know, if that's taken to the nth degree. And I think he's, constructed this story based on that. And I'm sure he's also read, you know, a, a lot of the numerous articles and literature on, you know, uh, what's the singularity. The singularity and that's it. that's so the phrase I was trying to think. Put it yes. all together. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Ray Kurzweil, the singularity is coming. That was the book was what, 2005. Uh, I did read that. At the time. What do you, what, if, if you don't mind me uh, asking, what do you, what do you yeah. think? Do you think that the singularity is something that is on the horizon or? So the singularity is an interesting question. So the, uh, just to define it quickly, God, we could do a whole show on the singularity, um, uh, a whole episode, multiple episodes. But um, just to define it really fast, like, okay, computational uh, speeds, computational intelligence is increasing um, exponentially. That means it's like it doubles every few years project that out. And then the idea is that at a certain time, something just completely changes where, you know, if every computer has the capacity of, uh, you know, 100 million humans, then all of a sudden, everything changes. And um, it's hard to predict what happens next. Um, We don't really understand, uh, you know, we we won't be able to understand what's happening next. Um, I don't know. I don't think there's going to be a year where it's like, oh, look at that. The singularity happened and it just turned on and uh, and this is crazy. Or, you know, someone invents some uh, 
someone invents some chatbot that all of a sudden learns everything about everyone and, 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 and becomes conscious or anything like that, or at least not, you know, you know, at least not in the foreseeable future. Usually the, I think the date Kurzweil gave for this was 2045. Um, but I do think that these, I, I think that these machines will get smarter, but Along with that, we'll have the tools to understand what they're doing, and I think it's going to be more of a smooth curve as it's been rather than some sudden ch- phase change. But that's just my best guess. Hmm. That's interesting. No, I, I think that's, that's a, you know, from what I've seen, that's a, a reasonable way of looking at it. There isn't somebody tinkering in a lab somewhere that's all of a sudden going to release something that's uh, – yeah. going to go wrong. And, and if it does happen, it would happen from multiple places. Like it would be, okay – you know, uh, the idea that one person is going to build the first super intelligent thing and then they're going to control the world. I, I see it more like a multipolar thing. No, uh, you know, when, when something's time has come, whatever technology it is, it, it'll be invented by many people all over the world. And there are so many more people in the world now <laughs> that, you know, all these things will come up. You know, it, it, the question is, will it get into the wrong hands? Well, it'll be in the wrong hands. It'll be in the right hands. And just like anything, there'll be different people using the technology for various ends and um, competing with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's certainly, it's, it's going to be interesting. The next 20 years are going to be very interesting. I think. Uh, of course. Uh, <laughs> and I think that there's more, I know I've read some things, people saying, well, we've reached peak deep learning and right now people are kind of just on the edges and there, there aren't going to be more breakthroughs. I, from what I've seen, I think there's, and also I guess what I've seen in terms of bits of research and also the number of problems that would be amenable to deep learning, and I'm just talking about structured data, I mean, uh, but general problems where they're not being dealt with yet with deep learning. There's so much opportunity there, and and I think some of and some of the limitations there, and I'm sure you see this in in your your day to day work. The limitations are are standard, you know, old fashioned software development limitations, and something that I find very uh, frustrating the difficulty of getting deployment done on most of the uh, the, the general cloud platforms. Yeah, Man, no, we it have is brutal. Yeah. And and what what I find very frustrating is some of the the examples. Have a toy example. Either the deployment is you press a button and magically it gets deployed, and you don't get to see what well, what's what's that doing, or there are a plethora of complex steps and. Uh, Python like you haven't seen before, and then it doesn't work. And I, I'm going to name any names, but uh, one of the major uh, cloud vendors had an example of deployment. I thought, oh, hot diggity, this is great. And it was broken because I went and looked at it. So we had this problem and I saw that there were a dozen other people who'd had the same problem. So I guess you need to actually work for that company and have something specifically set up to actually be able to successfully uh, deploy following the steps they provided. Yeah, no, I love it when uh, the algorithm can get retrained automatically, periodically, and then like, you know, post to a log with an admin page and how it's doing, keep up with it. But then, you know, you know, okay, it's getting smarter and smarter, because it's got more data uh, without me. But getting from, okay, you know, sort of researching the model, which is like, you know, trying to figure out how it's going to work to actually getting it working on that periodic basis with all the data that you need coming in, that is really tough. And then I find that the ones that are just one-offs, um, 
even okay so it's a lot of work to deploy those and then people are worried two years later they're like okay this algorithm is still deployed is it out of date does it still work nobody knows uh <laughs> and so it's like know, if it's not in, if it's not instrumented properly yeah. the initial investment you don't know whether it's actually return on investment yeah. yeah it's like okay well i think this but like okay if i train image recognition right to 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 uh detect a, a cat um and then I deploy it. And then a few years later, I notice it's still deployed. It, probably it could still detect a cat, but like, is there something that we should be doing to update this model? You know, maybe people take different kinds of photos now. Um, what is, is the fact that it's degrading a little bit harmful to us? We don't, you know, oftentimes people have no idea and this stuff kind of falls through the cracks. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and I think there 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 is some danger because there's uh, people saying where deep learning particularly is on the hype cycle that there could be a reaction to say, well, look, when these investments have been made, and businesses just can't make this work. It's overpromised and under underdelivered, and that could in the scenario you just described, that's an example of where that that could happen. Every time we build something, it's always surprising how long it sticks around. Uh, that's it. Either gets deleted very fast, or it sticks around forever. It's one of the other <laughs> I found. <laughs> um, so, all right, Mark, this has been a great conversation. I'm definitely going to get your book and check it out. It's called uh, Deep Learning for Structured Data. Uh, where can people go to learn more about you and uh, more about the book? Well, I'll uh, I'll share the the link. So it's Manning Manning uh, Publishing is has released the book. It's in early release right now. So the first three chapters are out, and we'll be releasing more chapters every month. Um, so I'll share the share the link with you. You can put in the um, the show notes, and uh, I'll also include a link to the Medium site where I blog. It's very kind of meat and potato stuff as I've, I've learned things, try to try to talk about them. And I think you probably this experience as well. There's nothing like trying to explain something to ensure that you understand it yourself. So that's yeah, something I yeah. try to do. I noticed you did one with um, you know getting the lat long from addresses. That's a problem that we do a lot here at Foursquare, uh, you know, working with geocoders and that sort of thing. Um, you know, one of the things that I like about uh, my job is learning about how things are done so differently all over the world. And nowhere does that come up as much when you're thinking about addresses. You know, it's like, okay, addresses work one way, you know, here in the US, uh, maybe they work another way, you know, in, in, in Toronto and Canada, where you are, uh, they work different ways, different parts of the US. In Japan, totally different. No, no street numbers, you know, and you, you have to deal with all that. So, uh, yeah, I got a kick out of that uh, article. Well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's it's that's part of the interesting thing. You have to have a, a messy, complex, real world problem to solve. It's it's challenging. It's challenging. All right, it's been great, Mark Ryan. Thanks for stopping by. Thanks so much, Max. I had a great time. Thank you. All right. Remember, if you would like to boost your career by pre-ordering Deep Learning with Structured Data, use the discount code PodLocalMax19. That's the number nineteen. Also, follow the link on this week's show notes page, localmaxradio.com slash 87. If you'd like it in ebook form, remember the first five people to email me at localmaxradio.gmail.com will receive codes to get that for free as well. Now, next week, Aaron and I are going to talk about a philosophical tool to analyze situations, everyday situations, big you know, uh, big thinking situations, all sorts of situations. That's called Occam's Razor. 
And there are other so-called philosophical razors that we will bring up as well. You've probably heard that term before, Occam's razor, but maybe you never knew what it was. Now is your chance. There's a big connection, actually, between Occam's razor and intelligence and artificial intelligence and learning. And uh, you'll learn what that is next week. Following that, we'll hear from the president of Liberland, which is a new country that is being formed out of an unclaimed patch of land on a river in the Balkans. Does that sound crazy to you? Well, it's a fascinating story. So that's in two weeks. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power. You're listening to The Local Ma... <clears throat> no, no. Okay. You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 87. I just had something in my throat.